Welcome to the Shift Daily Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's a daily bite-sized morsel of our four-hour middle-of-the-night program. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. The Shift Daily Podcast starts right now. Uh, let's bring on to the show our man that we have every single week with his world of uh, really weird stuff and strange topics. Greg Fish is here. Greg, you <laughs> you you dug deep in the uh, in the weird satchel for our conversation tonight, didn't you? Well, I mean, that's my my place, isn't it? Like that's that's <laughs> why I'm here. This this is your jam, isn't it? Worldofweirdthings.com. And um, uh, you can check out all of Greg Fish's articles. Uh, they're great. They will make you think. You will definitely new, learn new things. Now, uh, Greg, when I read this, we always read things from a place. We listen from a place. And for me, I did um, hear your idea from a place because you spoke about venting. You spoke of vol- volcanic venting. And that took me to volcanoes and that took me to my one of my favorite places in the world which is hawaii and i thought of the tectonic plates i thought of the rocky mountains so you kind of got me romanticizing about some of the glorious things that are land uh in this conversation and that's kind of the opposite and sort of your point i think about why about your topic tonight why don't you get us started there Absolutely. So all of these pretty things and all of these beautiful volcanoes and mountains, they're all essential for life because what they do is they help exchange the nutrients and the energy that's inside the planet uh, with the surface of the planet where living things can metabolize them and uh, keep food chains going and keep evolution going and basically keep our planet populated by living things. And One of the most important things for life is water, because water is a perfect solvent. It helps a lot of biochemical reactions that are necessary to sustain life. And so when we look at planets around other stars, we always want to try and detect water. And it's kind of the the, the idea that that implies is the more water we find, the more life we find. Sounds right so far, right? Makes sense. I mean, because they, they always say that sort of water would be the lifeblood of all living things. So, with that in mind, it turns out that some of the worlds that we have detected and maybe some of the moons in our solar system as we understand them might actually have too much water for life to exist, which I'm sure sounds absurd. It does sound a little weird. Yeah, but here's the thing. So, the mass of Earth is sextillions of tons of rock and only two hundreds of one percent of the total mass of the earth is water well we are talking about moons and planets that have up to five percent of their mass being water which means we're dealing with ocean worlds where there's no land and we're talking about um instead of you know a six kilometer deep ocean we're talking about 10 20 30 60 80 100 kilometer oceans and at those depths with that much mass, the water effectively changes into a solid at a certain point, and it bears down on the crust of the planet and effectively stops volcanic fissures. It stops mountains from developing. It stops volcanic vents. So it essentially 
kills the exchange of the energy from the inside of the world to external, um, to, to all these places where life could get started outside of the crust. So forget ocean depths, forget shallow seas. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing like that. It's just this deep, sterile, salty brininess. And that's pretty much that. Okay, so let me, let's be clear then. So we don't have too much water. That's why we get the volcanoes and the, and all the, the islands from volcanic change. Um, the, the note about the other planets is that there's just too much weight. They're just too tubby, too much water, and it's not coming. Well, essentially, yes. The oceans are too deep. And just the weight of the ocean on top of the crust means that if a mountain, um, if a mountain is trying to grow, it will essentially have like the weight of a small moon on top of it. Um, and it will never be able to materialize. If a volcano tries to open up and then some magma and some sulfur, some gases that bacteria could metabolize and grow into colonies and then it hopefully develop into complex life, that's not going to happen because the weight of the the weight of the water, the weight of the ocean is just going to keep it sealed. But on Earth, we have enough water to have deep oceans and shallow seas, but they're not too deep that we are squashing tectonic plate movement. And that tectonic plate movement fed a lot of primordial repositories for life. So that's one of the reasons why Earth is alive. And we have to find a planet that has a similar water content to Earth. Okay, so then I go, Greg, to a place of sort of Atlantis, and please forgive the fantasy part of the bubble under the sea, if you will, people living underwater, because you did just clearly say that, you know, it becomes too deep. But wouldn't that just create opportunity for life to be there, just not how we know it? You know, it is possible. Uh, one of the more weird things that we need to start thinking about then when, when we're talking about a planet that's not very much like Earth um, is that is there any sort of alternative chemistry that will make things work? So one of the things that we think might happen on Titan um, is that there may be cryobacteria there. Uh, so at the temperatures, at, at, at almost negative 200 centigrade, liquid natural gas essentially functions like water and it could be a solvent for certain cryobacteria. Now, the chemistry will be unlike anything that we have on Earth, but it could be something we could recognize as chemistry if we are aware of it. And we also have to rethink what the typical habitable planet looks like because, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of our ideas are based on Earth and we're kind of trying to find Earth's clone, uh, which would be really nice. But at the same time, statistically, the most prevalent stars in the universe are red dwarfs. They account for almost three quarters of all stars that we know to exist. And in the habitable zones around them, there would be planets that would probably have liquid water or some sort of solvent that could work like, like water. Um, but if they have liquid water, they're close enough to the star that they're tidally locked, which means they don't have a day or a night, which, and, um, red, stars also small red dwarfs um, also have x-ray flares that they emit regularly because of their low mass they have a lot of convection going on sometimes that results in very powerful magnetic storms and flares so life would have to be very resilient to radiation it's probably going to be underwater it's probably going to be in caves um, and it will look very different it will behave very different than life as we know it as well so 
in a way, we're looking at what we know about the universe now that we're discovering other worlds around other stars and kind of realizing we're sort of oddballs and we're in a very privileged position in many ways as living things. We, we kind of have the right amount of heat, the right amount of cold, the right amount of water, uh, the right amount of gravity. It's just kind of we, we have enough leeway in all directions that uh, we can involve a lot of complex life and other worlds might not be so lucky or the complex life that involves there will be something that's completely unrecognizable to us unless we actually just come face to face with it and have to say, well, yep, that's a complex living thing that's probably intelligent or uh, what have you. Well, this could be an opinion question. I'm not sure, but Greg Fish, you can take it wherever you want. Is, is it possible or is it too egotistical to be looking out at that big, deep black sky and seeing all of those stars and to think that the only life we're going to find is life that looks like us or lives like us or is made up like us. Is that too, well, it kind of seems, is that too human of a thing to do? I mean, you know, are we looking inside the box, if you will, at uh, an area that is not inside the box? Yes and no. Um, on the one hand, it is very tempting to look for life that is similar to ours because it's going to be easier to relate to it. And it's this easier sell to politicians who are funding a lot of these things. But at the same time, when we come across, when we, when we start talking about life, not as we know it, there's so many questions and there's so many unknowns that it's very difficult to say, well, this is how we know we're going to find it. It's easier to find life that we understand and know that we found life um, than it is to look into the look at the stars and kind of just try and figure out what could still be alive but be different from us because we'd have no frame of reference for it. I really don't think that any scientist who is looking for life on other worlds today um, really thinks that we're going to find life very similar to ours. And if not, then we can just go ahead and discard the planet and say, well, there's no life there. They completely understand this. They completely understand that uh, we're going to encounter living things that will be unlike anything that we understand to be alive today. But they also don't know what they would look like and don't know how we would find them. Yeah, I mean, we could be walking, we could be looking at a cloud and all this time we think it's just a cloud, but we don't realize that that could be what life looks like. Now, there is a very fragile balance that we know in life as we know it that is so incredibly perfect in order for everything to happen. I mean, really, are the odds very good that we're actually going to find like a balanced ecosystem that we sort of have here? Yeah, I definitely think so, because part of it is a lot of times when we look at, at our ecosystem, we say, well, isn't it marvelous that it, everything is so perfectly balanced for us? But the reality is we evolved to meet the needs of the environment. Um, so when I when I mentioned things like, well, we have the right amount of gravity and we don't have too much water, I'm talking about things like we are not a dead ocean world that where the seas are so deep that they essentially bring all tectonic activity to a standstill or our gravity is low enough that we are not a gigantic super planet where things can't really grow very much just because of the just because the mass they accumulate or become so massive that we become seeds for a gas giant 
like those are the kind of tolerances that I'm talking about. Like these are those are pretty extreme. There can be planets that are you know two three times the mass of Earth and have maybe you know ten times as much water, but they would still be pretty well balanced for pretty much you know life as we understand it. So I really think it's it's just a matter of statistics. Like there are trillions of planets out there. Um, the odds that we won't find um, millions of planets that have stable, balanced ecosystems are probably zero. The odds that in these ecosystems there's no life are practically zero. It's just a question of details. It, it, just numerically, statistically, it would be absolutely insane if we are the only things that are alive in our galaxy, much less our universe. There's definitely life out there. We just don't have the... We just don't have the time we haven't put in the time to find them and we haven't experimented enough and seen enough to really understand for what we're looking so right now we're just looking for our analogs because that's the easiest thing to do but in the future as we understand more as we look at more things as we maybe even have technology to to look deeper or even travel to some of these planets and i don't know when that's going to happen or if that's going to happen but if we ever get to that point, that's when we really are going to start making some of those breakthroughs. It, they're, they're, still, they're still many decades away, honestly. Uh, yeah, or millions of years. Who knows? It could go either way. Worldofweirdthings.com. Greg Fish, thank you, sir, um, for uh, the chat again. It's always so insightful, and I hadn't even thought of it that way. Thanks, Greg. Always a pleasure. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. Are you okay with more gondola vandalism? Well, I'm not okay with any gondola vandalism. Um, I'm not okay with vandalism in general. Yeah, like spray painting, sabotage, you know, like it's a very unsafe thing to um, to try and uh, alter. You know what I mean? Like that's going to affect people's lives and jobs and and experiences. Mm -hmm. I find uh, this story remarkable, stunned disbelief and squamish. The Sea to Sky gondola has been vandalized again for the second time in a little more than a year. This is Grace Key. For the second time in just over a year, someone has deliberately cut the cable on the Sea to Sky gondola in Squamish, sending cabins crashing to the ground. This event mirrors last year's event uh, in, a, in a very eerie fashion. So the mechanism, uh, the time, all of it uh, very closely reflects what happened last year. The first incident was on August 2019. In both cases, the downhill cable was cut. This time, someone triggered an alarm, and they may have been caught on new security cameras. It happened at 4 in the morning, the crash waking up nearby campers. It was pretty much trees falling and metal song, metal noise. How loud was it? Enough loud to wake me up, I would say. Several weeks ago, 
Two people tripped the alarm when they attempted to climb one of the towers. They didn't have any cutting tools, but investigators will be revisiting that incident. Throughout the day, police secured the area, but the wildfire smoke is posing a challenge. The smoke, it's very difficult uh, to do a search at this time. Um, so we're doing it bit by bit and foot by foot. Uh, we're up there just looking to see what we can find. Um, if there's anybody still up in that area, we have the dog section is up here. After the first incident, they reopened on Valentine's Day with 30 new cars and a new four-kilometer cable. They expect the same amount of damage this time, but the cable may be salvageable. They understand their importance in the community, and our community understands their place and how much we're going to need to work together to recover a second time. There's worse things going on in the world. We're not going to contribute to that. We don't want sympathy. We may need your support, but we will do this and we'll get back up and running, better protected than before, and willing and able and eager to greet people once again. Well, asked if anyone took responsibility for today's incident, RCMP said they didn't have any information on that at the time. Uh, General Manager also saying they're looking at putting up physical barriers, possibly around the towers. He also mentioned the possibility of a reward, and he'll have more information on that later. So, okay, I'm not a gondola expert. I don't know about you, but I've ridden in them, and I'm guessing that cable's not small. Like, it's not like you're going up there with a pair of pliers just cutting that cable. Because looking at the pictures, I mean, those, those gondola cabins fell to the ground. So how is it that somebody pulls it off once, let alone twice? Just portable yeah, grinder? that's what I'm not okay with. Yeah. It'd be really cool if they got caught on camera. But, I mean, like, how is it possible? It's not like it's just like, hey, by the way, snip and run. I don't know. It's mind-blowing to me. Can you imagine that phone call? Uh, hey, boss, uh, just so you know, the gondolas fell down again. <laughs> people, a lot of people got hurt. Yeah. Everyone oh. seems to be all right, though. They scared them. It was loud sounds, loud metal. <laughs> okay, bye. trees. Yeah. All right. See you at work. <laughs> like, yeah. you bringing donuts today? I don't know how that works, man. Anyway. Uh, we're not making jest. The good news is it seems like nobody was hurt. So uh, that's a good thing. And they're handling it well in the media, too. All right. So uh, are you okay? Are you okay? I, I'm not even okay starting this one. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> are you okay with Taco Bell wine? Uh, I mean, the the words Taco Bell... I know that's two words, but bear with me here. I know Very. that the, the phrase, the the thing, Taco Bell, the entity, and wine are in two sort of very separate islands, you know, very separate camps. Yeah. One doesn't, I mean, I've never had wine with Taco Bell, so I don't know if they go together, but it's usually like a soft drink kind of thing or a, like a beer kind of thing. Man, it's weird. Yeah, it's um, probably one of the weirdest pairings I can think of. Okay, so um, there have been different news outlets who have tried to spin it differently. Uh, one is sort of the spicy, one is the cheesy, you know, wine and cheese. But then that would probably lead you to believe that Taco Bell actually uses cheese, which I'm assuming that it's not real cheese. Um, I have no evidence to back that up. 
Taco Bell is debuting its own custom wine, Jalapeno Noir, to pair with its toasty, cheesy chalupa. So, oh my God! <laughs> Excuse me, I just right? ratched. Oh my God! Oh, the wine, which is being called a collector's item because it has three unique bottle labels, costs twenty-five dollars Canadian. Fans can buy it on Taco Bell's Canada website or at some some locations in Ontario. Jalapeno Noir. No es bueno uh, on this end. No, no, yeah, no. Not okay with no. this one. Yeah, we would be uh, like we would lose our radio thing. card. Right? It's terrible. We would lose our radio card if we did not include the dog. Yo quiero Taco Bell. And I feel better now. That made it worth it. Okay. Are you okay? Are you okay with underwater computers? Ooh. Very okay. Very okay. Yeah, I mean, underwater technology, underwater computers. I mean, the only problem I see with an underwater computer is that you'd have to have a diving suit in order to operate it. Yep. Well, I'm sure you could get a sleeveless one, Matt. <laughs> then the water will get in. Not if it's tight enough around your arms, wouldn't it? I mean, it still has holes for your hands. That's true. That's true. Doesn't it? Like, you know, maybe it's just a wetsuit. Maybe it's not a dry suit, Matt. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Are you okay with underwater computers? Well, Microsoft has now pulled its second underwater data center out of the water in Scotland. What? Seriously. Um, it was a data center, 100, 117 feet underwater. It was put under about two and a half years ago. And uh, they hoped that um, computers in the ocean might be the way of the future. So they did this test uh, with cooling systems. Everything was powered by renewable energy. And uh, the corporate VP for Microsoft told CNN, all about these underwater computers. It, it was actually a very, very interesting project, and it's such an exciting and challenging time for us. You see, we're facing a real data explosion right now in our cloud. Just to take one example, every time you pull out your smartphone, you're not using just the little computer in the palm of your hand. In fact, you have, at that moment, at your disposal, access to literally thousands of computers, and those computers are in the cloud. That cloud capacity, the demand for it is growing so fast now that today we're adding more machines to our cloud every month than we had in our entire cloud just three years ago. So finding good ways to sustainably cope with that growth is, is a big, big goal for us. And, and, and so this is the beginning of this. How, how many of this, these can we expect? And is there an environmental impact? I'm sort of getting this vision of the matrix with just like data centers and servers snaking everywhere if we keep up at this exponential growth. Is there an environmental trade-off? Well, in fact, the environmental sustainability of this concept has been one of the primary goals for us. You know, today, one analogy you could use is that in the early days of the automobile, people, tinkerers, would build by hand in their own garages, cars. And later, we moved to a mass production facility so we could have a more sustainable, more efficient way to produce cars and actually drive a lot of technology. Well, data centers today are very similar. Right now, 
every data center we build, and we've um, now manage over 100 data centers around the world, uh, is a construction project. It's a custom building that we put together. And all of those things have to find land, have to find power. By moving into the sea, we can have a mass a concept of a mass-produced data center. We can produce it in a factory. We can do it in a very sustainable way, do it very quickly, in fact, in less than 90 days, and deploy it where it needs to be when it is needed. And on top of that, we're able to do it in a way that is completely recyclable. Even this shell of the data center uh, can be recycled at the end of its lifetime. Data centers underwater, that kind of seems like littering to me. Like, can you imagine if something ever happens or archaeologists in the future go digging and they're like, what did these humans do? There's these little capsules of electronics running underwater. I don't know. That seems weird to me. There's all this broken junk underwater. Why did they put their computers down here? Yeah, look at look at this shopping carts. There's tires. There's all kinds of important things here. There's, st there's stubbies, you know, there's... Uh... Oh, stubby bottles. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so good. Oh, so good, Matt. 877-399-9898. Uh, some text messages came in here and some calls too. I think bobbing for Apple laptops is the new thing. See? Very good. Very creative. <laughs> I'll give you points for that one. <laughs> uh, another texter said uh, the gondola cable... The gondola cable is 55 millimeters or over two inches thick. So cutting a gondola cable, I'm assuming, is uh, is not something that's easy to do. Um, what are those 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 Ginsu knives or whatever, the ones, the scissors that would cut anything that you could get on the late night TV? You know, like the online shopping? They would cut through anything. Uh, not that. Okay, guys, wetsuits are used for cold water, and they pump warm water through your suit to keep the diver warm. Dry suits are made for warm water, and they come in short sleeves uh, if you want them. Okay. Short sleeves. I'll take that. Anything in short sleeves is good for Matt. And, Matt, I would love to see you um, uh, wearing that around work. Let's be honest. It would be warm right now, but I think in the dead of winter, it'd be I could do it. And the funny thing is some of our coworkers oh. would probably look at you and just go, hey, Matt. And not even think twice about it. <laughs> it's a good thing I never run into anybody here anymore. At nighttime. Another texture says, I am vehemently opposed to Taco Bell making a wine. This is absolutely disgusting. Um, that's like McDonald's making a wine to pair with its line of chicken and calling it a chili Chardonnay. You know, I would go for a McDonald's wine because if McDonald's coffee is in any indication, let's just tell it straight. McDonald's coffee is the best coffee that's available in the fast food drive through realm. Hands down. So, ooh, uh, here's a texture that says, um, Sasquatch can make easy work of that cable. Maybe we should ask Dave Scott. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's the Sasquatch biting the cable um, on Spaced Out Radio coming up here later on the show tonight. I think that would be all right. Maybe it's the Sasquatch chomping on the cable. Sam Squanch. Hey, maybe that's what it is. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt on The Shift. I have a friend. His name is Daryl Sandu. Uh, Daryl lives uh, just down the road, actually. Our boys play hockey together. And um, Daryl follows this guy on, on the tweeter uh, who dances an awful lot. Um, like, a lot. 
And I, I thought it was kind of neat, you know, uh, being around Daryl and and um, some of the different videos that he shares. But then there's this guy, and he dances a lot. It's bonger music. Um, it's traditional dancing. But the thing is, is that it's really absolutely could not be more so in the middle of absolute nowhere. Uh, his name is Gertie Pander. And he joins me now to talk about it. Gurdip, you're far away. Tell everybody where you are. Right now, I'm in uh, in the Yukon, in the north of Canada. Specifically, I'm close to Lake Labatch. I believe that many people in Canada are familiar with Lake Labatch. If you are not, then um, it's a very famous lake from Poet Robert Service. Um uh, and uh, more specifically, I live 40 minutes north of Whitehorse in my cabin in the wilderness. Okay, so this is why you're amazing to me. Uh, we'll talk about the dancing in a second. So um, so are you from, like, from India? Um, were you born there? You moved to Canada. And so this is the... <laughs> I love it. You, so you come from an extremely hot place, Gurdip, and then you chose to live 40 minutes north of Whitehorse. Um, that's got to be a different life. Yes, I'm originally from uh, Punjab, which is in the north of India. Uh, I was born in a village, Sayad, um, in a small village. Yes, then I moved to Canada. And uh, I ended up living in the Yukon, uh, and uh, in the wilderness, uh, yes, from uh, plus 40 to minus 40. So it's uh, 80 degree difference. <laughs> wow. So good. <laughs> so what inspired you to go? Did you stop anywhere else along your travels and then decide to go to the Yukon? Or was the Yukon where you were headed the whole time? I know. Before before moving to the Yukon, I lived in, in BC, uh, Squamish, BC. I used to work in Whistler. And then I moved to Saskatchewan, close to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's cold. <laughs> that's cold. You got too. used to the cold anyway. Yeah, I, I was making myself prepared. So I lived in, in a couple of places in Saskatchewan, little villages. Uh, I was meeting different people. And afterwards, I moved to the Yukon. That's how I ended up coming here. Mm -hmm. So do you work up there or do you just live off your, your, your cabin or how does that work? <laughs> so most of time here in the Yukon, I worked for the Yukon government. Uh, they have been my major employer. But recently, I've been doing a lot of my own things too. Like I've, I've been teaching dance classes. I've been making videos. A lot of I, I'm also creating a little bit music too, and sometimes people buy my music as well. Um, so, although I, I I don't say that uh, I'm living out of my art now, but uh, it, nowadays it provides me some sort of good pocket money <laughs> so mm -hmm. that I can enjoy the wilderness, and I, I'm trying to keep uh, my living standard as the minimal. Uh, I live in a cabin uh, without running water, uh, without any major modern facility. So very simple lifestyle. That that's also helping me to keep uh, focus on creative things like dancing and making videos. 
uh, uh, creating dance, online dance classes. So that's how I live. So your videos, what attracted me to them, a couple of things. Number one, uh, your love for dancing, and it's traditional dancing, like bonger music, the whole deal. And um, But there really is an expression in it when you dance. Like, I get the feeling that you just truly enjoy it. So you started putting these things on Twitter. It really has caught on. There are so many people that follow from all over the place. Um, it's quite magnetic in that it just, you kind of want to see it and you want to watch all of it. Um, and they're just simple dances, but you share this with local people who I guess, I mean, I'm going to sound stereotypical here, but I, and correct me if anything's offside here, uh, Gertie, but I mean, you're a guy who wears a turban, who moved to the Yukon, uh, probably don't see that every day. And then now you're doing traditional dances, uh, Indian dances and the bonger dances, um, in the middle of the wheel and beautiful places and sharing it with people. So, um, is that what it is? Just a love for the dance and the people seem to be receiving it, uh, just quite beautifully. Yeah, this is, uh, my love for dancing. Yes. Uh, I love dancing. I totally into it. I, I think it's my passion, everyday passion. And yeah, people are receiving it quite wonderfully, quite positively. Uh, the feedback I receive from all the folks from all over Canada is incredibly wonderful. It's, I think this is the feedback that Conti, uh, kept me moving on and on with my dancing, on my dancing path. Because uh, every second or third day, I receive a very touching email saying that, hey, Gurdeep, I was having a terribly bad day then your video showed up it made me happy <laughs> so uh, and some people like uh, sending me messages from um, situations like uh, dealing with covid uh, some other folks writing me from hospital bed i received an email from, from someone from hospital bed that uh, she was a uh, feeling uh, sad in the hospital bed and and started watching a video it made her day and 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 those messages they really touched me in 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 a good way in a great way and I felt that uh, through my dancing not only I'm I'm making people happy I'm also adding something uh, wonderful to their lives um, it it's uh, I started realizing that it's it's like a social service that uh, you help people lifting their moods up because uh, it, it's a it's a big thing these days I find that because. Uh, we are dealing with so many things uh, due to pandemic and uh, and uh, businesses. They had to close their businesses. Uh, we'll have to homeschool our children, uh, and uh, and you media people have to work from home. Most of us, so it's not easy. Um, so a lot of challenges. So despite those challenges, something if uh, brings you uh, a moment of joy. I find that it's great. Uh, so all these things, uh, it kept me um, keep going on and on. And also on top of my dance of love, I love the Yukon, I love the landscapes. Uh, I, I feel happy whenever I go to a new place, I, I explore a lot. So I, I like to make videos uh, 
in front of beautiful nature, all those n- natural places like lakes, mountains, flowers, sceneries, uh, um, seasons. I love seasons, like when it changes from summer to fall, fall to winter, winter to spring. I love it. I I I I think uh, we all get excited when when we uh, see that change from season to season. Um, so it due to so many reasons it keeps me going, and I'm uh, so happy that people find it joyful and they send me such a wonderful feedback. That must be incredible for you to see seasons. I'm guessing in India there's not a whole lot of seasons. Hey, it doesn't change much, does it? It does. Um, India is very diverse from the north where I am from, from Punjab. We see all four seasons. Um, so, but yeah, in the south, there's uh, only summer a year round. Like in the winter in Punjab, we used to have even sub-zero temperature. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I knew that up in that area that it would get cold. Um, I guess I kind of assumed that it was worse in the mountains, but it's a pretty... Um... You know, it's a pretty hilly mountain area. It's not like the beautiful beaches that you get down south, right, on the on the sea. So this is amazing. I think it's I think it's really Canadian. Um, and it's kind of cool to see a guy who's come from the other side of the world, uh, but you haven't. So you you've kind of you you show this whole look at how great it is to be a Canadian thing, but you still honor where you came from. And I don't know if I can find anything more Canadian than that. I mean, I guess as I get older, I'm starting to really discover now um, my my lineage um, of my family from Ireland, from England, and all of those pieces. And I'm just discovering it now. And then I look at you, who you're already living into all of it. Maybe it's because you moved from there, so you actually have your own. I was born in Canada. You you kind of have your your own recollection of those things. But it's it's so great to see, and I absolutely love it. Um, so all of your social meters, are they all Gertie Pander? So how can I want everyone to go see a dance? That's what I want to do. I want everyone to go see a dance and let you put a smile on their face. So how can they get in touch and see all of your, your dancing and, and the beautiful landscape? So there are several ways, like, uh, they can go to my website, which is, which is ca, and they can go to my social media channels. On my on on all my social media channels, my uh, handle is my first name Gurdeep, and my last name Pandher, which is P A N D H E R. And and if nothing works, just Google me, and I'm every, everywhere on Google. <laughs> you are everywhere on Google. If you if you do search uh, Gurdeep, I'm gonna try and say Pandher. I'm gonna try and say it like you properly say it. Um, in fact, if you just get to G U R D E. <laughs> it comes up. Um, and if you just search Gurdip Pander and you'll see the videos right there. Do you do you specifically go out and find people to dance with you? Or do they just kind of show up and start dancing? How does that work? Uh, it works both ways. Uh, sometimes I approach people that, hey, would you like to do dancing with me? And sometimes people approach me too um, that, hey... Uh, we would love to do dancing with uh, you. So it, it works both way. And and I, I'm feeling grateful that I did um, dancing collaborations with the people from different cultures, uh, even f- with Irish dancer. Um, you so told good. me that you have an Irish background. And uh, I did a collaboration with the Scottish bagpiper. Uh, did a collaboration with indigenous dancers. Uh, 
uh, French can can dancers, uh, uh, Highland dancer. So so I like to uh, create dance collaborations with different cultures to combine beautiful cultures of Canada together, just to show um, uh, this uh, wonderful unity in diversity through this dance. Well, not only that, but sharing your love for your um, your family lineage too. Um, there was that vi- that video of you uh, fitting that um, that mare with a turban, and uh, that one went viral too. So it's it's really great. I just want to acknowledge what you're doing. I hope that you can keep in touch with us. I think it would be amazing uh, to continue the conversation. And um, I also, not that I have any uh, skin in the game, if you will, but I want to congratulate you on your hard work. Because it put a smile on my face, and I'm very certain that it will for the audience, too. Thank you so much, Gurdip. Thank you so much, Shane, for having me. Thank you so much connecting me with your audience. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune into the show online or on the radio.